The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal people, traditional custodians of Jubagali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. In the 90s, legendary punk band Bikini Kill commanded space in the male-dominated music industry. They represented anarchist feminist music and encouraged disobedience in young women, emboldening them to publish zines and start bands as acts of cultural resistance. In this session at All About Women 2023, Bikini Kill's lead singer Kathleen Hanna and bassist Kathy Wilcox were joined by writer and Bikini Kill mega-fan Marique Hardy to talk about new ways to speak out, the balance between activism, anger and joy and how the band's blistering message is once again bringing girls to the front. This talk was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in March 2023. Hi. My name's Marie Hardy. I also would like to acknowledge that we meet tonight on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Yora Nation and pay my respects to Elders past and present and to acknowledge that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. In the 1990s, feminist punk band Bikini Kill commanded space in a male-dominated music industry. These anarchistic musicians encouraged disobedience in young women, emboldening them to publish zines and start bands as acts of cultural resistance. Bless you. After splitting in 98, the band reformed in 2019 with a renewed spirit of rebellion, and I am fucking delighted to be sitting here with them tonight. Please welcome Kathy Wilcox and Kathleen Hanna. Um, so, hi. 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 So far away from each other. Uh, it's been 25 <laughs> years since you were last here with Somersault Festival, and you're now playing the fucking Opera House. So, a little bit's changed again. How is it to come back here with so much happen in between? What's the difference coming back this time? Well, I don't know. What do you think, Kathleen? <laughs> what do you think, Kathy? Um, well, the audiences are really different, I will say that. Um, well, the Somersault Festival, that wasn't really our crowd. You know, we were, we kind of felt like maybe we, like, they made a mistake. <laughs> we didn't know why we were on the tour because, you know, it was like the Beastie Boys and Foo Fighters and all these bands. And I think we had maybe one record out or a record and an EP. And so when they asked us to do it, we were sort of like, obviously, yes. But I think we were sort of like, we didn't feel like, we were a little bit the odd yeah. band out a little bit. So... And we were playing like at one We were playing the little side stage, you know. By the dumpsters. It was great. I mean, it was awesome, but it was like, it wasn't our show. Yeah. But then we did play some shows around um, where we headlined and they were really fun and people were really excited. So. Well, I did want to talk about, I think for for some people coming to you anew, and there is sometimes a bit of a romanticization about your earlier shows. They're like punk rock icons and heady days of activism and DIY and all that sort of stuff. But a lot of your shows in the 90s, they could sometimes get quite violent and traumatic for you. Like audiences, it was quite an intense experience for you. Like, did you find that at the time? And that was a big part of the band kind of breaking up, dealing with that trauma? 
I don't know if that was why the band broke up, but we definitely, it was a struggle dealing with that, especially early on. I feel like the, f- the first time we really had to deal with that on a larger scale was the England tour when we toured with Huggy Bear. Because before that, we, you know, we toured with Nation of Ulysses. The shows were really small. So things would happen, but it, it felt like the rooms were small enough that we sort of felt like we could deal with it. And then we did this tour in the UK with Huggy Bear. And the rooms were much bigger and it was, it just seemed a little bit more like overwhelming. Like we didn't really feel like we had control of the situation. Yeah. I mean, what became strange as we got, we didn't do interviews with mainstream magazines and people sometimes uh, miscategorize it as we did like this press blackout or something like that. But for me, it was just really traumatizing a lot of times because I would get asked questions like I was uh, working as a dancer and I would get asked these really offensive questions about like, you're a stripper. How can you be a feminist? You know, and like, or, you know, the whole article would be about our bodies or, um, you know, it was just really disrespectful and sometimes really traumatizing. Or they would say, oh, you guys must have all been raped a bunch of times and that's why you hate men so much and like stuff like that. And so I was like, I don't, I can't do these interviews like for my own mental health. Like it's hard enough just to go on stage and have guys throwing chains at my head than to like also be like talking to the media who are asking these like titillating, awful questions, you know? And, um, and then what was really sad was that also fanzine people started doing the same thing. Like, you know, I had this really kind of stupid or naive idea that it was like, oh, you know, um, the feminist underground that we're trying to build, it's going to be, you know, this like utopian. So obviously it's going to end up being problematic and fucked up just like the rest of society. But also just the punk scene in general is like, how far can we push it to include feminist ideas? And the answer was kind of like at that time, not very far, because when we would do fanzine interviews, I was getting asked the same questions and being miscategorized as like, oh, well, she has a nice ass. Why is she complaining? Or, you know, stuff like that. And um, so, yeah, I don't know if that really answered your question about violence at our shows, but it did get it. It got weird. And I was thinking um last week about how this weird thing happened. And I remember, I almost remember like the, the, where I was sitting, like I was sitting in the front of the van, you guys were in the club and I was like, oh shit, something has drastically changed. And it was that we were in a lot of media outlets, even though we weren't doing, you know, photo shoots or we weren't trying to be, we weren't trying to be in them. And then these guys started coming to our shows and they, there was always guys who would come to our shows that would be like, take it off. Um, or like, shut up was the number one. Um, cause I would talk about like rape and domestic violence or like this song is about, you know, this or whatever. And I heard take it off more than on a punk show at punk shows than I did when I was dancing. I heard and shut up constantly. Just shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up and play, shut up and play, shut up and play. And I remember at a certain point, um, I realized that guys had started to come to the shows specifically to do that. Like it was a badge of honor to come to our shows and harass us. And we played $5 all ages shows. And so, you know, for five bucks, why not? You know, and, but it was like cosplay, but we didn't have that word cosplay. (laughs) Um, And it felt like... they had become a part of the performance, but it made what we were doing into a shtick and it wasn't a shtick. Do you know what I mean? It was like a play that we were performing with these men who were directing us to be angry when they wanted us to be angry. 
I thought that's interesting what you said about everyone assumed it was a press blackout that you did in the 90s. I actually thought it was a, it's such a strong way of setting a boundary and controlling that narrative on your own terms. So how has that been, that slow renegotiation with the media and starting to do, I mean, you've been doing interviews for a long time, but what has that felt like coming back to that and seeing the narrative either stay in your hands or go elsewhere? I feel like the media has changed a little bit. Like I feel like the people that are interviewing us are not as clueless as they were back then. Like that was the kind of thing is you would walk into an interview and you would know that the person was probably going to ask you a bunch of really offensive, stupid questions. Whereas like now I feel like the people that want to interview us don't tend to be those kind of same people. I don't know. And we also like, we work with other people now, like back then it was kind of DIY or die. And it ended up being like DIY yourself to death. You know, like I started thinking this is like female volunteerism on a whole other level because you know what I mean? Like you not only have to start the band, you have to like do the interviews and do the fanzine and, and run shows and stand at the door and pat people down. Cause there's no women to pat the other women down. And it was like, how much more fucking shit do I have to do? And we're booking our own shows. And you know, we had we didn't even know what a fucking manager was or a publicist was. And so now that we're older and we're like, okay, we can allocate, you know, um, because, you know, we were from a small town and we did, we honestly didn't know about those jobs. We learned what a booking agent was, but like, I didn't know what a manager did or a, a publicist. And so now that we have help, we're able to have people, you know, intervene and say, you can't ask that question. Or, you know, and also we we're older, have a manager, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> but we're older and we, we still don't have a manager, but, um, <clears throat> we do, but it's me and my name's, and my name is Susan Anderson. So if you get an email from me, <laughs> that was you. Oh my God. You were talking about being older when I was, um, researching for tonight and I kept seeing the term veterans come up. They're like punk veterans, punk, punk veterans. Is that a compliment? Like a, is a punk veteran a compliment? I don't the one, the one that really freaks me out is legends. Cause it's legends, like, yeah, legends of sleepy hollow or something. <laughs> we're like we're not real. We're like fantasies or something. Yeah. I haven't seen the veteran thing. I, 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 seen that I would prefer like veterinarian, but <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't think we really care about any of that stuff. Like we just want to play shows and we want people to come and we want people to know that we're playing and like it's free advertisement and we don't have a major label backing. We don't have a manager. So we still do a lot of this stuff ourselves. So for me, my, my press thing has changed into being like, Hey, this is free advertisement. And even if they miscategorize what I say, or they talk about stuff that I think is stupid, I don't care. I also, you know, have a pretty high opinion of readers being able to look at a text and make decisions on their own. You know what I mean? And like, I think people are pretty savvy that, uh, when a journalist cuts things in a certain way to be salacious or stupid. I think, um, just uh, Toby Val, who sadly can't be with us tonight, uh, as she's ill. Um, but I saw this quote where she was talking about the punk and hardcore scene is kind of a youth scene. And I just, I guess I wanted to explore what it is to age within that scene. Like what does it, is punk intrinsically youth? Is there an age limit on punk or what it is to kind of be a vet veterinarian within that scene? <laughs> 
I don't know. I think about Patti Smith, you know what I mean? Like she's still out there doing it and she's totally awesome and she's totally rocking and she's just as punk as she ever has been. So I don't feel like there is an age limit on it. I mean, it's interesting to play to audiences that are so young. I mean, now it's kind of mixed. It's like there's the older people and the younger people and then even babies. So that that's even definitely babies. different. You know, yeah, people bring their babies with like the cans. Yeah, they do. Yeah, I mean... For me, one of the coolest things about being in my 50s and playing is like, I super appreciate it, you know, and also because we have the help, like we have a wonderful crew, like, you know, when we started, we would just have random sound guys doing our sound and they would say stuff like, I'm going to turn down your mic in the middle of the set, or I'm going to shock you on the mic or, and this is like, literally you have some rando man who hates you controlling your voice as a feminist every night. And it was you know, there'd be the random nice person, but it was very few and far between. And so now that we work with these lovely people that we know is kind of consistent um, and we feel like we have the tools we need, you know, it's like you can't be a writer without a typewriter or a computer or a pen. And I feel like we were trying to do a lot of stuff without the tools we needed. <clears throat> and now that we have the tools, to me, that's the great thing about aging is that we're like, okay, we actually need this. And this would be helpful. The thing that makes me sad is that for younger bands, you can't afford that. You know, there are so many more barriers that people don't understand behind the scenes is that, you know, people who are trans are being treated like shit by the promoter backstage and then having to go out on stage and act like everything's okay. And, and this is constantly happening and pe the people who need most to have their own front of house person, their own, you know, monitor person, uh, tour manager can't afford it in the beginning. And I get scared that those people will quit. There's a power and, and privilege, not just in age, in being able to ask for those things as well, isn't it? And feeling like you deserve to ask for them. Do you find that there's a barrier there as well from the people that you spoke about? I think it's more just we couldn't afford anything like that. And so we just had to we just had to do the tours ourselves and just, we were at the mercy of whoever was doing sound. And those creepy sound guys are still out there. I know. <laughs> they're still doing their job and they're still, yeah. you know, harassing Touring people. Around. Yeah, they're still, yeah, exactly. Um, I find it uh, kind of interesting attempts sometimes of people shifting the meaning of punk, like someone like John Lydon from the Sex Pistols claims that, I'm sorry, that... Uh, <laughs> I know, um, but he claims that, you know, to be punk is to be anti-authoritarian, which he uses as a way to justify him supporting someone like Trump. Do you think that there is an appropriation of the term punk for that reason? People are trying to appropriate it? It's just interesting that he would say that supporting Trump is anti-authoritarian. I like, know, it makes no like sense. Logically incoherent. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess Trump was seen as like thumbing his nose at the quote-unquote establishment, but which is a discomfort. Like, yeah, 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 that's yeah. fine. We won't I, go I, too I, far I down there. It's too far. <laughs> he's, not, he's not invited to the party. Yeah, he's not invited to this party. <laughs> um, Trump or John Lydon. I mean, I... <laughs> no. I I always thought of punk not like as a genre of music, but I thought of it as, you know, people getting together to make culture separate from corporations who are like, we're going to make the stuff that we want to make. And it doesn't have to sound in a certain way. Like when I was in high school, I went to shows of like coercion and conformity and stuff and exploited and stuff like that. And like the guys would like spit on the audience. And I was just like, man, it's hard enough to be girl in this audience already, but then I'm going to like, pay $5 and have a fake ID and get spit on. Like, 
I just spit out of my mouth. <laughs> I was like, I was trying to make my point like in 3D. But, um, but you know, then I moved to Olympia where I met Kathy and um, there was K Records was there and the music was much more kind of like, I don't want to say amateurist in a bad way, but I want to say like, it was kind of this much more like, kind of like goofy childlike and in a way, traditionally feminine style of making music that was like not professional and that wasn't about spitting on people and that was about graciousness and community. And so I was like, wow, you could have this, you know, I, I started to question the macho-ness in a lot of punk and the, the aggressiveness that was like stupid. I love aggressiveness, but this one kind of aggressiveness that was like not for any point. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I felt like people seeing other people speaking back to power can be really great. And I think there's that part in like England, English punk, early English punk. Is that also with the aggressiveness that you mentioned before, like spitting on the audience, there's a, there's, there's different kinds. There's hostility towards the people who have paid money to see you or within the, I guess the pit or whatever, but there's a, there's a political aggression, which comes through the music. That's a delineation there, right? Yeah. I think one of the really strange things that, and we were talking about this backstage the other night, um, one of the strange things that's happened since our twenties to now is that like when we first started performing, we were performing largely for audiences of like cis straight white men. Um, and there'd be like, you know, maybe three women there. Um, and a lot of our shows did feel like battles. Um, and, and so there were a lot of songs that were like, we don't need you. And, you know, we don't care what you think about us and stuff like that. And then now when we sing them, they almost have a different meaning. And I've been changing some of the lyrics. Like there's this one song, this is not a test. And I'm like, you're dumb. I'm not. And I mean, what a great lyric, right? <laughs> you're dumb. I'm not. And then it goes, you're fucked. I'm not. Um, but anyways, I've started to say they're fucked. We're not because now we're looking out and we're seeing audiences who are super supportive. We're not having, you know, a guy spit a beer in my face while I'm trying to sing. I'm not having, you know, this kind of violence or people telling me to shut up. We still do have harassment issues at our shows. Like I don't want to sugarcoat it. Like there's been stuff that happened in the States that was really, really messed up um, and still goes on. But yeah, it's been a, that's been an interesting transition to, um, you know, be singing these songs that were written in a certain context and they still have that same meaning and I still have the same feeling behind them, but it's for a different audience. You talked about, um, well, you briefly mentioned fanzines before and also doing fucking everything at your shows, uh, as you were like a younger band and I you know you'd write the zines you would write handwrite letters to your fans you would write postcards to your fans I really like that you would write postcards to girls and tell them to write a love heart or a star on their hands so if they saw another girl in the same city as them with that symbol they'd know that that, that person wanted to talk about feminism um, I don't want to dig too deep into the you know the negatives about social media but how do you think that would have looked different for you today, like shows, if you can just like tweet about a show or put Instagram about a show and is social media a kind of necessary, good, bad tool for social activism? I don't know if our band would have existed if there had been an internet and social media. I don't know. 
I mean, I think that we were sort of insulated from a lot of the awfulness, you know, it's like, you know what I'm talking about, the awfulness that it's like, all you have to do is go on the internet and it's right there. And even though we were getting kind of harassed at a lot of our shows and stuff, we were really insulated from a lot of that because we could just choose how much to engage with it. You know what I mean? And like, we could read the letters and if there was a terrible letter, we just throw it away. It wasn't like you can't live your life, you know, whereas I feel like now if we had started our band, I don't know if we would have survived it. I don't know. I don't know how bands survive it now. Like yeah. The constant kind of just bullshit on the internet criticism and what. And you, you avoided social media for a long time too, didn't you, Kathy? Yeah, I still do. You still do. <laughs> and Toby's got her PO box at the top of her Instagram, which I thought was a good melding of both worlds as a strong Venn diagram. Yeah. But in terms of social media, being able to unite activists, being able to kind of like how much of it is a necessary evil in that regard? I yeah, mean, how much do you have to take that? It's like a double-edged sword. Kind yeah. Of thing. It's like there's the positives and the negatives. I don't know. I mean, it's a tool and it can be used for good or evil or in between, you know? Yeah. I just think it's important to still be like, you know, it's, it, it can be used as another form of art. It's another way to make art. It's another medium that we've been given that we can make cool things with. Like, I like to have that positive viewpoint on it. Like, I remember, you know, they got a copier in our town that had red ink on it. And I was so psyched because, like, I could make fanzines that had the color red. And I was just like, whoa, you know what I mean? Like, I had so many ideas for, like, flyers I could make and, you know, all this stuff. And I kind of feel like that's a good way that to look at the internet is it's like this other medium. It's like you could make a zine in full color with like moving stuff in it and all this stuff and know that it's going to be seen by a really large audience. Or you can make something that's like handheld and possibly ephemeral because you only make a hundred copies and you give them to your friends locally. Like you have choices. You can do either or both. Do you still handwrite letters and postcards to people, just even friends? I do. Yeah, I do, but only to certain, like only to friends. I don't do like fan mail. Or oh, no, no, no. That wasn't, don't write Kathleen lots of letters. <laughs> I don't even have an address reply. available to people to write me because I just like can't deal with it. There's a big thing here. Australia Post are now starting to reduce the amount of letters because people just aren't doing it any, anymore. But I do find there's the ephemeral, that, that nature of being able to hold a letter in your hand, especially if it's from like someone that you're a fan of. Did you guys ever write fan mail to people? Fan letters to other people? Yeah. Um, that we want to admit to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I never did. Did you, Kathleen? No. <laughs> oh, wait, I wanted to say something else about the internet. I feel like, so the main difference for me in thinking about it is that, you know, you can find community on the internet, but it's like, you don't know who those people are. So it's like, you have this community, but it's not a community of people that you're actually living with, you know? So it's like, you don't, I mean, that's what we had. We had a community of actual people that we would meet with. And so if you had disagreements with them, you would be like face to face disagreeing with them and you could work it out. Whereas like now the, if you have a community on the Internet, it's just you don't even know who you're talking to, you know, and you have disagreements and you can't tone is weird. And it's like, I don't know. I just feel like it's it's much harder to like keep a community together on the internet because of that reason it's like not and it's for what you're talking about it's like it's ephemeral and also yeah you don't know who you're talking to whereas like if you're holding the fans and you're talking to the person it's like you know there's the stakes are higher mm. in terms of 
negotiating disagreements. There is someone that I won't mention, but I do know that people in your family have voted for ways that are perhaps not in your line of voting. There you go. That's delicate. Um, I mean, you know, the world watches America and watches a divided America. It doesn't feel hopeful or hopeless from where you're standing at the moment. Oh my God. It feels so miserable. I mean, the stuff going on in Tennessee that just happened, I don't know if you all have read about it, but you know, they're passing laws to they're going to end, you know, same-sex marriage, um, also interracial marriage. Yep. Um, because the way the, of the wording is that anybody who's like the clerk at the place where they're giving the marriage certificate, if they have any kind of personal religious problem with someone's marriage, they can, they can choose, choose not, to not to do it. Do yeah. it. And it's absolutely motherfucking horrifying. It's horrifying. It's terrible. It's horrifying. It's a really scary time um, to live there right now. But I will say the one thing that I keep thinking is like, these people are terrified. They are so terrified by all the change and by the stuff, the great stuff that young people are doing. I feel so old that I just said young people <laughs> in a group of people. But people younger than myself, like, you know, people in their, in their twenties and their thirties, people in their teens, like the, the kind of emails and stuff that we get are so amazing. And there's so many kids who are so smart and so out there on the front lines in terms of like wanting change, positive change, like change for everyone, not just for themselves to like climb some corporate ladder or start some stupid internet brand or whatever, you know, and, um, that gives me a lot of hope. And I feel like a lot of this, these people, it's like the, the dying gasp, they know it's the end. And it's like, we're watching this very long drawn out death scene where they're trying to pull everyone down with them with all these horrible laws. But I do think that in the end, change is going to, is going to come and it's going to run those people over. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, uh, and I won't talk about American politics much longer. Um, but in 2016, I thought, uh, Hillary Clinton, without permission, used Rebel Girl as part of her campaign. And Toby contacted YouTube and asked for a cease and desist. Was there a pushback? I mean, there's a, a big understanding of why people may or may not support Hillary Clinton. But did you feel that there was a pushback for people going, oh, well, Bikini Kill isn't supporting the first female presidential nominee? Was there a general feeling about that? Or... It was the opposite in the world that I was in. People in the States had to be on secret Facebook message groups to support Hillary because it was like, if you were at all left, it was so embarrassing and awful to support her. I don't support everything she's ever done, but I didn't want Trump to be president. And I felt it was really important that people voted. And I saw this really hideous, evil crap by these I'm just saying rich, niche, lefty, white people who now are all the anti-vaxxers, by the way, uh, but who were like, I'm not going to vote because it's not perfect. It's not my choice. And it's like th this was a time for, for strategy, for strategic voting. It's not about you getting your way. It's not about you having the dessert option that you want on the menu. You know what I mean? Like people needed to get out there and vote against this racist, fascist, I'm not even going to keep going. Anyways, 
they needed to get out and vote. And so I was actually fine with Hillary using it in the campaign, but I was also really fine with Toby not wanting it used. And I think that that was really kind of a cool moment. I think it was before we got back together, but it was cool because we can disagree. And, and I think that that's one thing within all, you know, groups or movements or teams or whatever, that there needs to be like productive disagreement and being like, that's cool. We disagree. It's not bad. We shouldn't all have the same ideas. It'd be so boring. Is there a different way you negotiate conflict within the group now that you did 25 years ago? I think we're just better communicators. Yeah. Also, Less I mean, defensive. Yeah. And like, I think texting is great. <laughs> like, you know, it's like sometimes when you're on a tour and stuff happens, you can't really have a conversation in private so much. So it's like, you know, we can like text each other and be like, hey, that kind of hurt my feelings or, you know, like I'm needing help with this or, you know, whatever. And like, that's where the new technology, I, I like texting. <laughs> um, I just there's a sense that or an understanding that marginalized communities really begin having the sort of conversations that inevitably end up being part of a public political movement. And in that sense, the underground punk movement probably was ahead of the curve with Me Too and the discussions that were being had amongst women in that scene. Would you agree with that? Yeah. We were ahead of the curve on everything. What are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, wasn't there something going on at Evergreen where people were telling each other about guys that had sexually assaulted them? Oh, it was like a list yeah, in, the, in bathroom. the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. And it was a very similar thing to that list that was going on in the U.S. where there was like really controversial. And so people were like, this is fucked. Like, and then other people were like, this is a safety thing. Like it's, you know, but yeah, it was, that was back in 1989 or something. That was a long time ago. How did the complexities of the Me Too, the very public-facing, white-driven Me Too movement feel to you in terms of relief that the conversations were so public but also understanding all the other communities that have been having these conversations for so long? I mean, how did that feel for you? Was it complicated? Yeah. I mean, obviously you don't want Me Too to become crime shows, have more black victims, which is kind of what I've seen happen. You know what I mean? Like... They're like, oh, let's be inclusive on our crime shows and so show more murder victims and rape victims who are women of color. Like, that's not what it should be about. And that's not representation. Um, I think also, I'm just going to speak as, a, as I'm a person who's older. I think a lot of older women have had impulses that we would not want to express that are like, well, I just put up with it. You know, I mean, and I wasn't, I wasn't like voicing that to people or telling people, I don't believe you for God's sake. But at the same time, it's like, there was a feeling of like, well, I gave a hand job to get a ride home a bunch of times. Like, and then I was like, wait a minute, that wasn't okay. So I started learning stuff from that of how much crap that I had put up with. Um, and kind of also, I felt really relieved you know, I felt like the younger generation had like relieved me of my own guilt, of my complicity in some of these situations by pointing out that like, no, that wasn't just a bad date. That was actually rape. You know what I mean? Like, um, but at first I did have this defensiveness towards it that I, I found really interesting. And I, and I just like, you know, I journaled about it. 
like you texted some people yeah, yeah. like you know that's it i think i think part of the thing is people don't journal enough like they just go and they write these stupid articles that are like oh i don't think that really happened because when you know i was younger blah, 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 you know what i mean like and it sets these like generation gap divides that are like really awful well, I want to talk about elders for a moment because I do think there's a lot of space made and with very good reason for LGBTQIA plus elders, for community elders in kind of making space to respect the work that's been done before us. How do we hold that space in terms of second wave feminism, which can be rife with transphobia? How do we respect the work of that wave of feminism and with that problematic element through it? I think you engage with it. Like, I many, many, many years ago, I did a panel discussion with like Adrian Piper and Carolee Schneeman and um, a bunch of amazing second wave feminist visual artists. And the paper that I presented was called The Centralist Trash Can. And um, it was kind of about how I felt that a lot of women who weren't like biological determinists or essentialists were being put in this trash can just because of their age and generation without people actually investigating their work. And I think that's something that really is important to not, and you know, as, as, as a music fan, I do the same shit all the time. Like, I'm like, Oh, that's just like that. I won't like it. You know what I mean? And it's like, you put somebody in like, Oh, well that's like Judy Chicago. And that's like, not my kind of shit. So I'm not even going to investigate it. But I think it's really important to investigate individual women's work and, and to take the stuff you like and to throw the stuff away that you don't like, you know what I mean? It's like, and if something is like that person is saying some bigoted, horrible shit and you can't deal with it, don't deal with it. You know what I mean? Like you, it's fine to be like, I, I don't, I don't want to, there's tons of artists who it's like, they might've made some cool thing, but I'm just like, I can't, I just can't even engage with it because of what their kind of public-facing policies are. Yeah, and it is, I mean, it, it does get complex when those women have trailblazed to a degree and fought in a, in a different era for, a, for different things and then have set beliefs, but being able to, to hold both of those spaces at the same time, to being able to critique their bigotry but also respect the work they did, it can be complicated. Yeah, but there's also a lot of second-wave women who weren't... Yes. That's what I'm saying is like they get thrown into this like essentialist trash can where it's like they're all the same. And like that's the same thing that, you know, I feel like because of capitalism, there's this whole idea of like the new improved thing. You know, it's always like the new improved thing. We want the new improved thing. And so we don't end up building and having these continuums or these legacies. We end up having like you're an icon on a hill and you're this and you're that. And it's like it's not a clothesline that is all connected to each other that we build on each other's mistakes, you know, and we build on each other's successes um, because we're just people are so invested in trying to become more progressive than the last thing or more. And I did that when when we first started and I was like kind of had these weird insidious digs at a second wave feminism that I had not studied correctly or enough, you know, we're like, um, acting like they weren't sex positive and look at me, I'm so sex positive, you know, but, uh, I'm actually a total prude. So I don't even know why, uh, but you know, 
And then I actually started engaging with the work and finding all these sex positive feminists from the 70s and early 80s. And I was like, I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. But I can say that now. I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. You know, and I think that, you know, it's just important to engage with specific people's work and make specific decisions and not make a blanket call on everything, you know? Yeah. I mean, you talk about, you know, having different perspectives and, and learning more along the way. I mean, you've been public facing activists for decades now. What does it look like for activists, I guess, in present day specifically when it seems a lot harder to fuck up in public and still be an activist? You just have to keep going and just ignore it because life's messy, you know, and it's like people make mistakes and that doesn't mean they need to be erased off the face of the earth. You know, it's like you have to give people the ability to learn things and change. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's complicated, but you just have to like power through. It's hard. It is hard. Yeah. I mean, and it's also like, you know, learning to, to know the difference between fake criticism and real criticism. I think that was one of the biggest things that happened to me in my, my early thirties was being like, Oh, bullshit. Criticism is when people are like, you're wholly worthless human being. You know what I mean? Like you can't do anything like that, like about that. You can't, if somebody tells you like your guitar is out of tune on the second, you know, song, you can fix that. Or if somebody says, I feel like the way that you're communicating about this, about um, this specific thing is really hurtful. And you're like, oh, you're right. Like I, I wrote this stuff in, I think Bikini Kill 1 or 2 about like being sexy and powerful is this like feminist statement. And my friend wrote to me and she's like, um, you know, she, I'm fat. She calls herself fat. She's like, I'm fat. And, and I feel like you skinny girls talking about being sexy and powerful makes me feel like shit. And we had a dialogue about it and I printed the letter and then she ended up starting her own fanzine. And it's like, you have to be able to have those engaging conversations and not cut them off before they happen by trying to be perfect. Like, I feel like that's, that's the thing is that some people self-criticize before they even make the work, expecting the criticism, and then they don't make the work that they just set out to make. And part of the thing is, is making mistakes in public and like, you know, a lot of times people who are marginalized, if you make a mistake in public, they will wallpaper every room with it and make you sit in there. And if you hate yourself enough, you'll walk in yourself and refuse to leave. And, you know, that's just one of the things that we have to look out for as like, as artists or musicians or whatever you all do is that that that's a reality. If you put your, your voice out there, people are going to fuck with you like real hard. And even people from your own community are going to try and pull you back and be like, stay in our community. Don't go outside of our community, you know? So it, 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 you have to be very open to who you listen to and how you listen and how you have those conversations. Right. And also know when to tune out the people who are fucking with you. Yeah. And also like, I know that I've made mistakes. Like I've thought things were sexist when they weren't, when it was just a thing about being a young band, you know, and, and I thought, oh, we're being treated like this because, blah, 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 you know what I mean? And then I found out like my friends whose band was getting the same kind of treatment. You know what I mean? Like that I've also overshot the mark and, and pointed, you know, blame in the wrong direction. And like, that's part of being 
a young activist or, you know, that's just, that's part of it. And so when I bear the brunt of that side of it, I can be more understanding because I've done that to other people. I've thrown my like, you know, emotional Molotov cocktail through the wrong window before. And so when it comes to me, I can sort of like just watch it explode and be like, okay, that makes sense. You can see where it comes from. Yeah, not take it personal, you know. Um, There's a lot of questions coming in and thank you everybody for asking some. So if if you're happy, I'll go through some of these. Uh, Felicity Heath, thank you. Why do you think so many Riot Girl bands and references are depicted in 90s uh, teen films when that wasn't happening on a mainstream level? Wait, what's the question? <laughs> I don't think Kathy doesn't really watch TV. The first part of it. Like, no, I'm just like, why do you think Riot Girl, like that movement, is depicted in a lot of kind of you know retrospective '90s, early 2000s media, film, television when it wasn't that case? Is it? It is. Yeah. Well, what's a retrospective '90s television thing? What are we talking like, about? Like, there's some show called "It's a '90s World" or something. What is it called? Seventy show. It's called "It's a '90s." Oh show. yeah, that that '90s show is that it '90s show. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's like a huge influx of it. I feel like, you know, there's mentions here and there. There was that movie Moxie. There's like a couple things. Yellow jackets. Yellow jackets. Oh, yellow I jackets. like that show actually, uh, but. Did they mention us? They didn't. You're just hoping. I hope they do. I was like, they should have us play on that show because you know what I mean? Like, but like as now, and then they're like going back to their youth. I don't know. Whatever. We'll talk. We'll have a pitch meeting later. We'll brainstorm. Um, someone's saying, uh, would love to hear your thoughts on the overturn of Roe v. Wade in the States and what that potentially means for other parts of the world. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's terrible. I mean, yeah, you guys, it's just really bad. The only thing I can say about it is that it's lit a fire under people. And I feel like when our band first started, you know, we were doing, we would do um, concerts for, you know, benefit concerts for abortion play providers and things like that, trying to raise awareness. And I think that there was a lot of complacency about that, right? And I think a lot of people thought that we were kind of overreacting or something like, oh, they'll never, they'll never take back the right to abortion or something. And so as horrible as it is, I feel like it's really, um, people are really organizing around it in a way that it's like, hopefully um, something good will come out of it. You know, hopefully at some point they will um, codify it into U.S. federal law. That's the hope. But yeah, it's terrible. I'm really conscious of just with all of us in this room, there's about 15 minutes to go. There's a lot of political questions and I appreciate that, but I'm also conscious of the emotional safety of the people on this stage as well who have to live in this every day. So do you mind if I just kind of keep the questions a little bit lighter for the last 15 minutes so we can end on a little bit more of a hopeful note Drives together? Like that sad. <laughs> <laughs> Are you feeling okay? No, I'm feeling okay. It's just like, you know, it's like we basically like went on stage the night it happened, like that the final thing happened. Like we haven't, we've been, we haven't had time to process it in a way or like, it's just, it's very, it's, it's very heavy. And, you know, I've been 
marching in marches since I was a kid for the same fucking thing over and over and over and over and over again. And then to have it be like this late in the day that they do it, you know, it's just like, and, and what it means to so many different people and how much it affects people who are poor, people who are rural, people who are in different situations, people like me will always have access, you know, and it's just, it's, this is a dream killer. Like I think of it as a dream killer because there's so many, and while, while many young women and, and young people who can get pregnant can have kids and still follow their dreams. And I don't want to diminish that and say that does not exist. It was not a possibility for me when I had my abortion at 15 and like, I wouldn't be on the stage without it, you know? And so it's always been important for me to to still fight for it. I got to go to college, which is like, you know, my parents didn't get to do that. I got to do that partially because I didn't have a kid. And, and it terrifies me to think of all these young people whose dreams will be deferred or ended <clears throat> because they have no choice or who will die trying to, you know, thank God for plan B pill doesn't always work. Um, I really appreciate you talking about that in a way. Cause I, I, we have no idea what it's like to live in that country. And I know how emotionally complex that is for you. So yeah. Um, well, thanks for being cool. And like for noticing that my face was weird. That's okay. <laughs> and if you, and if you do need to walk off at any time, yeah. you can take that. And I'm also, we do talk about a lot of things on this stage tonight. <laughs> Always your emotional safety is paramount. I'm sure anyone that's fans of Bikini Kill knows that there were going to be political things talked mm -hmm. about, sexual assault, abuse, but take care of yourselves when you go home tonight too. There are lots of resources of people that you can talk to, but this should be a space where we do feel hope and connected and not unsafe. So, just check in with yourselves and each other. Um, here's a question from Angeline Norman. As an active self-publisher, do you have any advice for young zines, specifically for feminism and sex workers in Australia in 2023? I guess just to make the decision of like, do you want to make it? Who do you want to see it? Who's your audience? And how are you going to get it to them? Are you going to Xerox it? Are you going to or print it on your home printer that breaks every five seconds? Are you going to, you know, put it on the World Wide Web? Like, what do you, who do you want your audience to be? How far reaching? And what is that going to, what kind of impact is that going to have on you? And how are you going to keep the door open and the door closed in terms of getting feedback? What kind of feedback do you want? What kind of feedback would be helpful? And how can you reach out to get that feedback? And how can you deal with the trolls? who, if you put it out in a large way, will show up in droves um, to tell you that you, you can't be a feminist and a sex worker at the same time, or, you know, you're a slut or whatever, mm. shame you, like whatever. Yeah. How do you self-care as an activist? <laughs> <laughs> um, I got a curling iron and I started, I started sometimes wearing my hair down and curling it. And I felt like that taking that, five minutes was like really weird. <laughs> like really weird. Um, I feel like getting off the internet is the most important thing. Like really getting off of it, you know, like for days at a time. Yeah. That's, that can be really healing. I don't read Get in touch with nature. I, I sometimes I put know. pictures on Instagram when I'm traveling or when we're touring, but like, I don't read stuff typically, um, on the internet. Yeah. 
Self-care is hard. I mean, you know, if you've dealt with trauma and crisis in your life, it's sometimes very hard to sit in quiet um, or, or to be happy. Like happiness is a very terrifying landscape for me, I found. And um, I'm really working on waking up in the morning and just sitting there. I mean, I have my coffee, come on. But like having my coffee and just like sitting there and just being. Because for me, a lot of ways that I deal with trauma and, you know, whether it's political depression, political trauma, personal things, like whatever, is I just keep making shit. I just keep making stuff or like, I don't know how to be friends with people. If I move somewhere, I start a basketball team or a softball team because that's the only way I know how to interact. It's like hard for me to just hang out. So like here I am 54 and I'm finally learning how to like hang out, you know, just like have a person over and sit in the backyard and have coffee and like stuff like that. I guess that's self-care is like, just sitting there and not having to be productive or, you know, doing stuff and just like listening to the birds. <laughs> I got really into birds in COVID. You it's deserve COVID. that. You've fucking done a lot. You deserve to sit in the backyard and drink a coffee and listen to birds. I know, but I had so much anxiety around it at first and so much bad. Like I would be like, oh God, the world's going to fall. You know, if I sit in happiness for a minute, it's going to get ripped out from under me. You know, Roe v. Wade, some crazy thing like Roe v. Wade's going to get overturned and Brent Kavanaugh's going to get on the Supreme Court. And and none of that happened, luckily. Um, Yeah, it's, it's, it's just sometimes it's hard to sit in, in happiness when you've, when you've, you know, had trauma and crisis in your life because you know, I'm sure a lot of people can relate. You have that feeling like the rug's going to get ripped out from under you. So don't enjoy anything. Don't like anything. Don't fall in love. Don't feel good. But I'm here to tell you, don't wait till you're 54 to listen to the birds, kids, because it's beautiful. Well, I know you're listening to a lot of birds, but uh, someone wants to know which new bands are you currently inspired by? I love Problem Patterns from Glasgow. They are like my ultimate favorite band. And I strongly recommend that people go on the internet, on YouTube, and there's a full show of them that happened during the lockdown where they're just like in this room. Oh, it, it's so great. I mean, just like the coolest art band. They sound different from anybody else. They switch who sings the lead singer though has this amazing delivery i just absolutely their ideas are great they're just brilliant so problem patterns from uh glasgow scotland my fave kathy i don't know <laughs> we played with this band called parsnip, parsnip and they were really good yeah they're fucking awesome yeah they're great um a question for kathleen how did you start tease for is it togo yeah. The pronunciation. And what are some of the changes you've made there for girls and women and how much work is there to be done? Oh, God. Um, well, we were talking earlier about, like, you know, Roe v. Wade being kind of a dream killer and another dream killer of, you know, young women around the world is not having educations, not having ID cards, um, being forced into um, marriages they don't want to be in, um, and in Togo, West Africa, which is, I, I have a t-shirt company. It's called Tees for Togo. And the money goes, it's $40 for a shirt. And the $40 is how much it costs for a young woman to get tuition to go to school. Um, and we've been so successful. We've, uh, we're now sending or paying the tuitions 
for women to go to college, like full rides for four years. And um, yeah, don't applaud me. It's, it's all the founder, uh, Tina Kempor, who founded Peace Sisters. She's from Togo, and she was an educator there, and she saw the need. She saw that boys were being sent to school, and girls weren't, because a lot of families don't have enough money and would have to choose, and they would choose the boys. Um, but so she started this program, and the really wonderful thing about the work that she does is that it's not just about, here's the $40, you can go to school, you can get your you know books and your tuition or whatever found out that a bunch of the students were missing school for one week every month because they had their periods and they had no menstrual pads. So we got menstrual pads. Um, They weren't passing tests because they couldn't study at night because they had no electricity. So we got solar lamps. So it's really about like identifying. um, We go there, someone from the, two people from the organization go once a year and identify what the obstacles are. And then we try to meet those obstacles with fundraising goals and stuff. And the t-shirts have been huge. They had a, a thing of like $5,000 for the first year. And now we're making them like $60,000 a year um, because people buy the shirts and the sweatshirts and people like John Waters have donated his image. Um, so many people have let us use our image and all of the shirts are fully licensed because being in a band, we know what it feels like to be bootlegged when your bread and butter <laughs> is your t-shirt. So none of our stuff is bootlegged. And it's it's been remarkable to see um, the changes and, and we're growing. So that's awesome. Okay. Yeah. People here got t-shirts and t's for, okay. Well, there's be more of you to get them. I think, um, I am interested in artistic process and I wonder if you'd be able to say something about your creative process and how you work together. I feel like I've just been talking and talking and talking and talking. Um, well, historically, I mean, I don't know. Well, how do you write a song? I don't know how you write a song. Like, cause well, You're in, in casual, Bikini, yeah, in I mean, it depends bands. on the band, but in Bikini Kill, we would, we would just all come into the room together and they would just come together. I don't, none of us like sat down and wrote out a whole song or anything like that. You had lyrics and then we would go in and just parts would happen. I feel like, I don't know, that's not very coherent. <laughs> do you do the artist's way or anything? You said you were journaling. Do you get up and write things down? Uh, I am one of those people who has gotten to chapter four in the artist's way 300 times um, and never made it all the way through. But at some point in my life, I plan to. But the artist's yeah. way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do stuff. I'm all about stuff like that. You journal, right? You do sort the crossword of. puzzle. I, I mean, I'm, I don't journal like my inner feelings or anything. Like I'm not trying to work out like emotional stuff. I just journal stuff so I can remember it because honestly, like I kept a lot of journals in Bikini Kill and that's the only way I can tell like, where were we in 1993? Who did we play with? Like stuff like that. Yeah. But that's your creative process as songwriters, as makers, as musicians that must've changed since you were last a band. Is it different or is it, do you, do you find you fall into those same rhythms of how you create? You mean how we journal or how we create? Because I Both. journal like my everything's like super personal and super heavy and like whatever. And Kathy's like, today we were at blah, blah, blah. And we saw this guy named Jet Winston. But the reason you don't want to do those super heavy journals on tour is because if you lose it, uh, which I have, which you have, that's why I'm saying that. Where did yeah. you lose it? What happened? More than once. More than once. I've lost a journal that was like, ooh. Pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
No, but I have actually started writing more like this is where I am and this is what I'm doing and stuff like that. I'm just so self-absorbed. It's like hard for me to write about other people, <laughs> you know? Um, I think I've got time for um, one final question, which I think is a, a good one. If you could go back to the beginning to when you started Bikini Kill, knowing what you know now, what would you do differently, if anything? <sighs> I feel like a lot. A lot. <laughs> I don't know. That's tough. Like, we should have had, like, a whole bunch of therapy before. We I know. <laughs> like, no, seriously, just seriously. learning how to communicate. We would, it would have been so much better if yeah. we had been able to just, like, I don't know. We had really low distress tolerance, I feel like. Yeah. I think, I mean, we're all sensitive people to a certain degree. And, like, you know, it, what's really funny is, like, I look, I see the old videos. It's like I go out and I'm all, like, you know, like, little macho person, like, you know, like, double dare you. And if, but inside I was like skating around like a doe on ice. Like I was so vulnerable and so, you know, took everything so seriously. I mean, I was like so emo and, um, and I think that, yeah, a lot of the stuff that was happening from the outside that, you know, getting back to the very beginning of what we were talking about is like a lot of the stuff that happened to us from the outside, like we had to sort of like not talk about what's going on with us because we were constantly dealing with how are we going to get to the next show? How are we going to get food? How are we going to survive? How are we going to pay rent? How are we going to, you know, it was always like that stuff. And so it wasn't like there was like time for us to like be doing the artist way or talking to each other or like any of that stuff. And, and I think a lot of us dealt with a lot of really heavy shit in the nineties and we kind of went off in our own corners and didn't, didn't feel taken care of by each other and didn't take care of each other. Like, I remember just thinking, oh, well, Kathy, Kathy has it. She's so strong. And I think we all thought that about each other. And now that we're older and we're hanging out, we're kind of realizing, I wish I would have gone to her apartment when that thing happened and knocked on the door and said, I'm here, you know? And I think now we would. We were busy surviving at that time. Well, I think that's it, is what you said. It was like we were just dealing with things as they were coming. And, you know, we were young and we were just trying to figure out how to deal with it. And it was pretty traumatic, a lot of it. So I think, I don't think we had a huge emotional bandwidth to be, you know, really mature about a lot of other stuff. So, yeah, we all dealt with it in our own way. <laughs> well, I'm fucking glad you got through it and survived it and that you're here with us today. It's been an absolute privilege being in this room and sharing this space all together. Thank you all for holding yeah, out with you us. For thank you to all about women and our amazing Auslan interpreters. Watch other talks from All About Women 2023 on Stream, the streaming platform from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching at stream.sydneyoperahouse.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.